Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my uh, Gaudi Mitzvah 22 YouTube videos and Podbean podcast. I have part two lined up today of my conversation with Mark Stallman, which I began last week, and I promised my viewers that there would be a part two because there, there was a huge response to my interview with Mark from last week. Uh, overwhelmingly positive. And that really pleased me to no end because I think Mark is a, is a brilliant guy who has something uh, very important to say. So I'm very happy to welcome him back to the show and to start with, uh, to go on with part two of our conversation and part two of our conversation, we're going to talk about many things, but we're going to start with uh, something that Mark and I were just talking about off camera, which is the fact that, um, you know, Mark is an expert in technology uh, and the implications of digital technology in, in particular, and he's involved in all kinds of projects uh, dealing with that. And one of Mark's points is that the church, of course, is the repository of eternal principles, eternal truths. It is the, uh, the, the body of Christ extended in time, and the church is rightly always understood, therefore, that she has these foundational, perennial, eternal principles at her core. Nevertheless, uh, that is sometimes not sat very well with the fact that the church is not, that the world is not eternal. Uh, the world does change, uh, and that uh, conflict between a changing world and a church that perceives itself as eternal and unchanging is kind of what has led to certain um, sort of things in the in the so-called modernist crisis in the church and so on. So I'm going to turn it over to Mark to begin our conversation. Uh, why don't you just sort of go, sort of riff on that, Mark, and, and go on with what you were just talking about with me? Uh, Larry, um, uh, thank you very much for continuing this conversation. Uh, and your uh, viewers, um, audience, uh, I thank them also for staying with uh, all of this. I hope this proves to be uh, fruitful. Uh, this uh, tension between the um, eternal and the temporal um, is not a um, unknown one. It's not a um, we're not introducing this topic. This is not something that that a, a lot of people smarter than me have thought about a great deal. And yet, unless you have a very firm sense of causality in particular formal causality, which was eliminated uh, largely under printing press conditions, um, say, aggressively beginning in the 17th century in the West. Uh, it is important to underscore here that we are talking here about the, the West largely, although we will later in this conversation perhaps have a chance to talk more about China and other spheres as they are operating today in geopolitics. But in the West, the introduction of print, um, not simply Gutenberg, because of course Gutenberg uh, was emulating um, manuscripts in, in the beginning. And I've actually seen a, a roving museum exhibit in which the earliest printed books in Canabula uh, were meant to look very much like they had been written by hand <laughs> on vellum. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, but that uh, that shift, of course, went way beyond uh, the church printing um, uh, 
indulgences, which was actually probably the, the largest single use of the printing press uh, <laughs> in the 15th century. Uh, and as we get into, into, into the uh, uh, 16th century, things really start to uh, kick off. And so ultimately, we wind up with uh, attacks on causality. We wind up with a new science being formed that doesn't have causal principles. Royal Society of London is particularly egregious in this regard. If you have a chance to read the bylaws of the founding of the Royal Society, you'll see in that uh, implied that they will only deal with material and efficient causes. Uh, on your own time, not on, uh, on the Royal Society's time, you can fool around with final causes and formal causes all you want. But then, of course, we, we wind up with uh, Hume, uh, who, interestingly enough, wrote his very first work at a Jesuit college in France, um, not in England. And it was anonymous. He didn't want to take credit for it. <laughs> but this this is this is the the beginning of the attack on the whole notion of causality and whether there's any necessary connection between cause and effect and and Hume is um, emphatically negative on that point. So the undermining of causality, which came along with the print paradigm, mm -hmm. along with many other things, including the Reformation, uh, but more broadly. Uh, the philosophic and scientific context. So we can uh, identify Descartes and this whole uh, exercise. There are a number of other people um, who we can headline, and ultimately we will wind up with Kant uh, in, in that um, stream. Um, but you're not going to find formal causality in Kant. Right. It, and indeed, it's as if causality had been uh, reduced to those only those things which could be instrumental, only those things which, which could, in fact, be modern. And it was in that same time frame that the distinction between the moderns and the ancients uh, uh, really became um, uh, focused. Uh, and so realizing what had been eliminated what the uh, what the moderns had refused to pay attention to. I don't know that the church fully understood what had happened to them. Right. By the time we get to Trent, um, which is the church's response to the printing press, um, there were more important issues like salvation and and so forth, dogmatic issues, uh, serious, uh, perennial. Uh, principles that are at, at issue. And having read a fair amount about Trent, I have not found anybody saying that, hey, this is the printing press. And what does the printing press actually change in human beings who grow up in that environment? Instead, it winds up, of course, as, as we're all familiar uh, under these sort of circumstances, uh, something of a circle of the wagons, um, something of, of the... Um, uh, apologetics, uh, which turn out to not always be defensive, but they, they seem to have missed the point somehow. Yeah. And, and then we get into, um, by the time of the 19th century, the, the, uh, the print paradigm is 
exhausting itself. And uh, it's replaced by the electric paradigm, which happens to be the uh, area that Marshall McLuhan mostly focused in. And so we can think of technologies like telegraph, uh, moving pictures, newspapers, which are really radio. Just, uh, telegraph, uh, eventually radio and television. Yeah. But by the time we get to the end of that whole electric paradigm, which describes the world in which all of us, I presume most of us <laughs> listening to this grew up in, we were shaped by that environment. And so there are aspects of our subconscious biases, which we're not generally aware of. An enormous amount of work, of course, has gone on to try to bring subconscious uh, uh, connections, intuitions, and so forth to the surface, not very successfully. And, and so the modernist crisis, as uh, perhaps uh, uh, Pius X uh, would have described it, ultimately leading to the oath against modernism. So for a long period, from the early 20th century and until Vatican II, 65, I believe, uh, every priest and every instructor in Catholic right. schools had to sign a document as an oath against modernism. Yes, they did. Now, that that in and of itself should be the, uh, the image that you have in mind here now, because it clearly, um, the synthesis of all heresies, um, no one had any interest in dissecting it, and in particular, trying to understand what caused it. So um, we can identify um, Satan uh, as a cause. We can identify any number of, 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 of possible uh, supernatural uh, aspects of this. But is there a natural reason, um, an environmental reason, a technological reason why modernity under print and modernism under electric paradigm, why do those things happen? Now, this turns out to be very much the work of Marshall McLuhan. So uh, I will recommend um, that your um, viewers begin, if they haven't already, a study of Marshall McLuhan. My recommendation is that you start with the last book, not the first book, the last book published posthumously by Marshall's son, Eric McLuhan, entitled Laws of Media, the New Science. This was a direct result of the difficulties that many people had reading Understanding Media, published in 1964, which is a very um, aphoristic, metaphorical uh, sort of treat. And so what, what happened when the time came in the early 70s for a potential update, the editors uniformly said, well, you've got to do science now. This has to be about science. You, you can't just tell these stories. You've got to do it scientifically. So he and his son, Eric, um, sat down and they accomplished that. Uh, we spoke about this uh, briefly last time, uh, a heuristic called the Tetrad, which in fact is derived from Henri Lubach's uh, medieval exegesis right. of four senses right. of scripture. Um, so this is... Um, Catholic, and if I dare say, this is Orthodox Catholic. Um, yeah. 
this is actually in the in a chromistic register, um, not a uh, Reginald uh, Gergoud Lagrange uh, sort of um, uh, slap you on the uh, back of your hand, but in in the larger context of Aristotle and Aquinas, and it really has um, been recognized by McLuhan scholars that this book alone. It, it appears as if McLuhan is now stepping out from behind the curtain. And McLuhan scholars overwhelmingly refuse to use it, which is why I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Go ahead. So you're going to have um, uh, some of the better known names in the McLuhan world. Uh, I don't need to rehearse all of this. Having told me, uh, point blank. No, I, I don't have anything to do with laws of media. That's not Marshall McLuhan. That's Eric McLuhan or some other dodge around this. No, that is Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> I will guarantee you that. And, and along the way, because McLuhan is an English professor, he's not an, a convert at that. Um, so he was never schooled, if you will, a, as a Catholic. Uh and uh, it, it wasn't really, you find very little theology, for instance, in his library, which, uh, by the way, um, there are two archives of McLuhan work. Uh, I'm a, I love archives, so I'll just mention archives for people who might be interested. His personal library is located at the University of Toronto Rare Books. Okay. So anyone can sign up and go and, and read his library, which is particularly useful because he wrote um, uh, in the margins of a vast majority of those books. So you'll get his comments. But his uh, office, effectively, he died in 1980. His office is, is in Ottawa in the um, National Archives of Canada. And there are people who have gone through that page by page. So there... Um, there's a rich archival basis, fortunately, for McLuhan, which is not true for so many others. Right, right. Um, McLuhan's understanding that formal cause is at the heart of everything that we're now talking about um, didn't really appear to him so obvious until after Vatican II. And so, in addition to those two archival uh, sources, there is a published volume, which has collected letters of Marshall McLuhan, which I would recommend for anybody who um, likes to research that way. And in that, you'll find fascinating accounts uh, of, of his correspondence with many. Um, and uh, Jacques Maritain is a particularly prominent uh, correspondent. Uh, with him, uh, along with uh, uh, many others of that era. So um, what I was just suggesting to Larry is that um, if I had to summarize all of this, so I apologize that we're uh, uh, a couple of hours into this conversation before I have, uh, have had <laughs> to present an elevator speech, but uh, a few of my colleagues, um, one of the things that we're doing at uh, – Center for the Study of Digital Life is an online experimental university called Trivium University. And um, I'm getting a lot of feedback. Uh, we're halfway through a, a summer school version of this. 
And the title of the first course is Crisis and Causality. Eight sessions, two-hour sessions, Crisis and Causality. So right there in the title of the first course yeah. is what I'm about to suggest. And, and that is simply what we're doing is asserting that if you can retrieve causality in its fullness, this will be an enormous aid for returning to Christ. The causal relationship between humans, human history, and the divine was severed when we dropped final heaven or hell when we drop final cause and formal cause but of the two uh formal is the one that really needs to be carefully thought through because what technology does is it changes the forms in our life yes and it is those changing forms that i would respectfully suggest the church has had a difficult time uh, wrestling with for uh, at least since the introduction of the printing press and and probably earlier than that. Um, as those who uh, have been careful, like uh, Larry has in, in understanding the history here, things were already going awry in the 13th century. They were. By the time we got to the 14th and 15th centuries, there's no printing press yet. And, and yet the, the table has been set um, for a, a radical departure. Now, yeah. I, w- I would here just point out, and, and uh, uh, we spoke of this uh, uh, earlier as well, uh, D.C. Schindler's Freedom from Reality, book one, is an extended conversation about John Locke. Right. John Locke is many things. Um, among them, uh, it seems many Locke scholars are prepared to say that he was deliberately ambiguous. Um, many uh, would say that, that he was actually channeling many other writers. Um, Spinoza often comes into that conversation. And as you know, um, this is not that early, but often these people, um, and Locke's a good example, they significantly revised their writings from one edition to the next. This wasn't just a reprinting, it was a rethinking. So Schindler does a masterful, uh, obviously, job on all of that. But freedom from reality um, is a fine way to highlight the effects of print. And he also, of course, goes through some of the genealogy involved here to, to underscore for us that you're beginning to see problems in in many places uh, long before print came along. So here we are um, undergoing another one of these radical transformations, transformation from the electric television era based on illusion, which we all grew up in, now to an era of the digital paradigm which is not based on illusion. It's based on memory, although they overlap. And so this, this becomes uh, an enormous challenge 
Uh, I will not um, provide a litany of um, failed attempts to get attention uh, to these matters. Um, in, in the church, uh, in Rome, in um, pastoral settings, um, it has been, uh, it was naive of me to think that, that something that wasn't otherwise uh, being widely discussed, um, somehow I would be able to parachute in or my whole group would be able to parachute in with our various connections. But we're beginning, I think, to make some significant progress on this. And I hope that these interviews contribute to that. We we have forgotten um, those perennial things that would help us to understand um, how the world is not perennial. That and uh, man, this I could listen to you talk for hours. Uh, th one of the things that is uh, so fascinating to me about what you're saying is that these are issues and problems that I've personally been thinking about for about 20, 25 years. I mean, I, you, I think you read my book. Maybe that's how we first came yeah. into uh, contact with the, my book, The God of Covenant and Creation, the first half of which is essentially a, a theological metaphysical analysis going back to the 13th century, you know, the rise of nominalism and so on, uh, where the what I call the ontotheological synthesis of the, of the classical medieval world begins to come apart. And when it comes apart and then we see the right, I focused on the rise of modern empiricism and modern empirical sciences. I did not focus so much on changes in the paradigm of our consciousness created by technological shift. I, I focused almost exclusively, as, since I'm a theologian, on those sorts of theological shifts. Uh, but the thing that the common thread, and that's when you first contacted me, was the loss of formal and final causality. Uh, that and that theology desperately needs metaphysics and to retrieve this concept of formal and final causality, which is something that has been utterly lost in the modern world. I was just discussing this very topic with Connor Cunningham and Adrian Walker in, in, in a video I posted the other day. Uh, so there's a nice overlapping between these two conversations going on. Um, so but uh, all that being said, that's sort of autobiographical. Uh, I want to come back to the modernist crisis. Um, Joseph Ratzinger, for example, which maybe comes as a shock to his many critics who caricature him as the Panzer Cardinal and, you know, just this right wing, uh, intransigent, inquisitorial type. The fact of the matter is Ratzinger himself said that the church never really completely dealt with the modernist crisis properly. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he said, for example, Pascendi put up by Pius X, the syllabus of errors, the oath against modernism. He says maybe it bought us a little bit of time because the church didn't have the intellectual apparatus for, for dealing with the crisis. And so we just sort of put a lid on it. Uh, but now the lid has come off. And, and Ratzinger says we still have all of these unresolved issues. And the fact of the matter is, too, and then I'll turn it back over to you, this thing, this essentialized thing that we think we all know that we call modernism was actually a very vague phenomenon. Uh, and, and essentially any thinker, any Catholic thinker that took the categories of historicity, subjectivity, uh, historical change as absolutely critical junctures for thinking, for Catholic 
theology were suspected of modernism. Uh, and that tells you something right there about the mentality of the people in the church. We simply have to maintain this sort of deductive scholastic way of thinking along the lines of dogmas as first principles. And then boom, 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 boom. Uh, this this ironclad apologetic then follows that convinces nobody. And then you use then you weaponize the holy office against all of these thinkers that, that were kicking against that goad. Uh, and bingo, you get this thing called modernism. And, and the Vatican Council then comes along and lifts the lid off the ecclesiastical libido and everything goes nuts. All right. And as my old mentor, Germain Grise, a moral theologian that I studied under many, many years ago, people that well, he's a very right wing guy, too. And yet he was he was opposed, for example, to the forbidden index of books and things like that, because all that happened was that all these guys had manuscripts squirreled away in their desk drawers that they copied and copied and sent around to their confreres and used with their students. And then when the council happens and the forbidden books index goes away, boom, there's this explosion so allegedly out of nowhere of all of these dissenting theological views. And some of them were dissenting views. So some of them were crazy. But this is why. This is what, what happened. The, the repression didn't solve the problem. Uh, and Never so did. now we're dealing with it over 100 years, 150 years later. Right. Right. No, repression um, never does. Repression, um, as in the Soviet Union, for instance, just just leads to samatsa. Um, the uh, literature on the topic of propaganda and recognizing that the church has actually used propaganda in, in uh, uh, more constructive ways, uh, perhaps. But uh, and and uh, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger was actually involved in uh, some of these uh, entities that had propaganda in the name. Uh, yeah. Propaganda has come to be understood as ineffective by the propagandists. So propaganda has come to be understood as whatever the party says. Yeah. And um, we all know that when, uh, in, in a similar fashion to what you just described, in, in terms of uh, suddenly uh, everybody's desk drawer uh, is open and uh, and Jack the Beanstalk is in there. Uh, uh, you, you know what happened when the wall came down, right? When the Soviet Union collapsed. Yeah, yeah. Occult bookstores opened up on every street corner in Moscow. <laughs> I did not know that. No, they, they'd been doing it on their own. The, the notion that the Soviet Union was atheist in, in a philosophical sense is absolutely wrong and yeah. naive. How, how could it be? How could any society actually be atheist? Not, none of them are. It's just a matter of understanding what they're doing instead of what we might call theology. Yeah. So at, at the risk, and I will be gentle with this, um, to the extent that theology and philosophy share the love of wisdom. Um, it turns out that first principles are, are, we need to understand the human being better before we go off and theologize or philosophize. These um, intellectual activities, and I'm gesturing towards my head, the uh, neocortex, which is a giant wet blanket uh, over the uh, mid and, and uh, uh, older brains, uh, 
we are not simply thinking animals or intellectual animals. I think there's a reason why the term used instead was rational animals. Now, ratio, of course, is balance. It's a ratio. It's a comparison. And so there's very little ratios going on in much of what passes for uh, higher uh, brain functions. Uh, again, I will be careful not to name names here, but I remember being drawn in to a uh, annual event, which was meant to uh, study Aquinas. And I was looking to meet people who had been in contact with John Dealey, for instance, the semiotician, and, and others uh, who could help me to expand uh, how we were describing all of this. And when I said to the man who had organized this, the man who has, I started, and then the list begins, and it goes on and on and on for pages, all the things he started and all the things that he's been involved with. When I said, you know, psychology really has to precede philosophy. Um, before we get to the intellectual dimension of this, we must somehow deal with the sensory dimension of this. We, we are not given at birth or throughout our lives a functioning model or snapshot of the world. We have to figure it out. Yes. And the figuring it out is not an intellectual activity uh, unbound. <clears throat> it's not a Prometheus unbound. It's, in fact, quite specifically bound. This is a mistake that the, um, particularly the doctors, the medieval doctors, would never have made. Right. So, so in some ways, um, the inner senses, as described by Aristotle and many others, um, left the world of theologizing and philosophizing and instead lived in a medical world. So your mental health is the, the way this tends to be approached. Uh, uh, you and I uh, were also just briefly talking about uh, uh, George Klubertans. Right. George Klubertans may not be a familiar name, uh, but he um, uh, wrote quite extensively. Uh, he was a, a Jesuit based in St. Louis, therefore a uh, uh, housemate, I guess, with uh, Walter Ong, who may be familiar to, to some of your uh, audience. And he wrote his um, PhD dissertation on the cogitative power the most important of the inner senses that we have largely forgotten. Uh, very powerful work. Uh, very scholarly, going back to all the sources. This is not something that he invented by any means, uh, but it was striking to me that a Jesuit wrote this thesis. And, and the reason why and this is uh, still really to be researched and, and fully explicated. But the 
understanding of the human soul, the human psyche, that should underlie any work uh, in philosophy or theology, the more intellectual working out of the implications of this, the church dropped that ball um, like a, uh, a cannonball off a, a very high building. If you go to the Catholic Encyclopedia, uh, at which, as we know, uh, was largely written or composed in or around the modernist crisis. So it was it was meant to show the Anglophonic world in competition with Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, meant to show the Anglophonic world what the Catholics thought about nearly everything. And, and there's one marvelous entry that I would refer people to, and that entry is faculties of the soul. And the faculties of the soul entry simply says, we don't know what the faculties of the soul really are. People disagree with each other. So why don't we just avoid the topic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's... In, in, instead, let us be intellectual about this and bypass the, the, the critical psychological dimensions. Now, the research uh, I, I'm hoping we or somebody else can carry out to fill in all the blanks here does have a couple of of uh, bright, shiny lights in it. In particular, the notion of a differentiated set of internal faculties, inner senses, uh, appears to have offended Suarez. So this is a, a 16th century, as the Jesuits are taking over from the Dominicans, as they're becoming the backbone of church education under print conditions, that the form of the soul, the formal causality associated with our inner senses was eliminated from their standpoint. Obviously, the Dominicans tried to hold on uh, with this, and so the battle between Jesuits and Dominicans is, is probably worth, uh, I hope somebody's actually done done that history. It, it's a very important part of what we're talking about here. Okay. Uh, by the time we get to the modernist crisis, though, it, it has become just sign the damn oath, yeah. and everybody's going to be watching you, and you'll be reported. We have our Gestapo, and we have our propaganda coming from on high, and obviously... As you have skillfully uh, illustrated it here, it just simply worked, didn't work, it cannot work. Now, in the, in the wider world of media manipulation, it became clear in the um, 1950s, I would say. Um, maybe it was even earlier than that. Hey, let me go back, actually, to um, your audience is probably familiar with uh, the anthropologist Margaret Mead, yes, and her her one time husband um, Gregory Bateson. Okay, they may not be familiar with an organization um, uh, called the uh, Center uh, for the Study of uh, uh, No, 
conference, sorry, Conference on Science, Philosophy, and Religion, uh, CPSR. You'd have to be, since it had its heyday in the 40s and and early 50s, you'd have to somehow be engaged in a research project. Few people are alive today to remember participating in it. As it turns out, my um, wonderful partner in launching Trivium University, Fred Beitler, uh, now a lecturer at the University of Chicago and elsewhere. It it, it turns out uh, that uh, um, these questions were bubbling around the whole uh, Great Books Project, of, of which he was a part. And it turns out that he did his PhD dissertation, University of Chicago History Department, on the... Um, Restoring an, an American Conscience. And this is the conference on science, philosophy, and religion. Um, Albert Einstein, Mortimer Adler, uh, Jacques Maritain, I believe all three of them keynoted the very first session. And many others were involved. These, these are hundreds of people coming to the Biltmore in in New York and publishing papers and and having uh, chats with each other um, and and somehow trying to um, put Humpty Dumpty back together. Uh, I'm hoping that that Fred, who's a busy man, will find the time actually to publish his um, uh, own dissertation. Um, We have the opportunity for the first time to recognize all the dimensions that we've been discussing here today. This is, this is not a, um, a sad, uh, this, is, this is not a give up sort of situation. This, this is not Good. a woe is me sort of situation. This, in fact, is, uh, I think we're now ready for the breakthrough that McLuhan lived his life hoping for. Okay. Uh, and uh, by bringing back causality, in particular, final and crucially formal causality, and then understanding how uh, social and ultimately psychological forms <clears throat> become habituated uh, when you're young, and, uh, and how that uh, then becomes quite difficult to change later in life. We should be, I think, probably more than cautiously optimistic about the opportunities going forward. Again, presuming that we don't blow the whole thing up between now and then. Yeah, um, I want to be clear at this point too. Some of my to some of my viewers, I mean, neither Mark nor I are saying that the church does not have a role to play in adjudicating sort of doctrinal orthodoxy from doctrinal heresy, that it does not have, that there isn't such a thing as theological heresy and that there have been no theological heretics, that they they were all just free thinkers that the church wrongly put down. And so we're not, that's a caricature. And we're we're not, we're not in a sense talking about that. We're we're not uh, free for free for all sort of people ecclesiologically. Uh, in fact, we're both very orthodox, uh, very orthodox Catholics. The point, though, is that there were serious questions 
that these paradigm shifts in technology and an, uh, an increased awareness of the importance of, of subjectivity and historicity that were being raised, the church simply decided to ignore, to, to sort of repress, to put down, uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. In, in some sense, uh, even though a lot of the post-conciliar chaos has been bad and negative, in another sense, it's a necessary pruning. It's, it's the death throes of a certain, a certain ecclesiastical regime and being replaced with, with, with something else. What that something else is going to look like has is yet to be seen. Um, uh, but it's it simply it's not going to be birthed. This new this new sort of evangelizing, re-energized church is not going to be birthed via the old methods of, 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 of sort of a return to scholasticism and index of forbidden books and these sorts of things. And so these issues are, are coming to the fore again. And what we need are theological, philosophical, and sort of psychological thinkers to come forward to sort of put a synthesis together, if I'm hearing you right. We need, we need a new synthesis that takes formal causality seriously, theologically, philosophically, psychologically, on down to, to give us, as you began this conversation, with a proper view of what it means to be a human being. Correct. We are compelled to ask the question, what does it mean to be human? Because right. we are now in every headline, in every stock market report, in every geopolitical um, account, artificial intelligence has, has now pushed its way uh, on, onto the front page. Yes. Uh, I don't know if, if you want to go into much of what's involved there other than say, uh, the man who coined the term artificial intelligence in 1956, I, I don't know, Larry, if this is always available uh, to uh, folks who are studying these things, but I always ask the question, who exactly was he arguing against? Yes. When he coined yes. the term artificial intelligence, what, what was his problem? It turns out, I have done some scholarship on this, uh, but not enough. My erstwise godfather, Norbert Wiener, the inventor of cybernetics, had published the book with that title, Cybernetics, in 1948. So that's the beginning of this whole AI exercise. And then he returned quickly in 1950 with a book titled The Human Use of Human Beings. <laughs> that is who McCarthy was arguing against when he invented the term artificial intelligence. You think humans are so important? You think humans have some association with the image and likeness of God? Well, guess what? We're going to make an artificial version of this, and it's going to be better. Wow. So that was the motivation. That was The motivation actually immediately uh, comes uh, against my own family history and, and my, uh, my father's uh, uh, he was a protege of, of Norbert Wiener, uh, and in many ways, what I'm doing today and still fleshing out the details of is, is trying to to move along the human use of human beings project that uh, that Wiener started, and then was uh, severely attacked 
from many directions, threatened potentially with uh, congressional testimony, threatened potentially with uh, prison, uh, along with all of his colleagues. It was uh, social science in those days, the post-World War II, early 1950s days, in particular a field called social psychology, okay. was the field um, uh, run out of initially out of MIT by a, a man named Kurt Lewin, and then later on uh, Lewin's death moved to Institute for Social Relations at University of Michigan, where it has continued in various fashions to this day. It was the social psychologists who had it in for Wiener, and ultimately uh, ones who have given us a broad-based social science that on the face of it has simply failed. So I, I want to underscore here, everything Larry has said about the church and how it attempted to bottle things up and how the explosion then uh, wound up being a, a massive of green goo uh, all over us, uh, and the opportunity that we have now, I want to underscore that this phenomenon, the paradigm change, which we are now in, is not in any way limited to the church. Right. Not in any way. Um, the collapse of simultaneous collapse of theoretical physics, collapse of theoretical biology, collapse of many of the social sciences, collapse of complexity uh, science, which was thought to be the way out of all of this stuff, from chaos theory to complexity sciences, the collapse of cognitive science in psychology. This is not me projecting. This is not me wishing that all of these heresies would right. collapse. They're doing it of their own weight. The, the thoughtful people in each of those fields... Yes. I have, I, I'll interrupt for a second. I, I have a very dear friend uh, who is a psychologist who's uh, well-published. I'm not going to mention his name, uh, but who said to me once, it's hard to be a psychologist uh, and an intellectual these days because for the most part, psychology has become complete bullshit. <laughs> 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 so that is his rather vulgar way of saying what you're saying. I mean, there's just been this collapse. Yes. Um, you don't have to look any further. Um, my typical example of this is just ask anybody in health services at any college um, in the United States. They are handing out tranquilizers, mood alter, um, uh, all sorts of, uh, of pharmaceuticals in the hopes that the kids aren't going to commit suicide on their watch. Yeah. I once asked my friend who's written on schizophrenia. So what causes schizophrenia and, and which is a disease of the modern world, by the way. Uh, yes. And he said, he said, uh, Oh, probably demons. And he laughed and he goes, because that's as good a theory as, as any, <laughs> <laughs> which was his way of saying, we don't know. We, we have no, no. idea no. what, what human cognition really is. We have, however, by the way, he didn't really mean that, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yes. no, no, but but in, in some sense he did. I mean, I, I bring this up from time to time in, in our various planning meetings when I say, look, it's one thing to say that if what we are doing begins to make a difference, it will be attacked. Yeah. That's obvious. 
But so we kind of know what we're up against and, and who's going to mischaracterize what we're doing and, and so forth. But the uh, more serious point is when you think about what we're up against, <laughs> this is absolutely, and this is the reason why, of course, so often technology is thought by many uh, to be the devil's work. Um, Marshall um, was uh, fond of the phrase, the prince of this world, Satan, mm -hmm. is a very great electrical engineer. <laughs> yeah. So my, um, I guess, uh, hopeful <laughs> word uh, for your audience uh, is that um, we have already witnessed the the break in the narrative. And uh, Trump's obviously, with all the rest of the, the incredible baggage that comes along with him, um, I'm a New Yorker, I guess, and so I've known a lot about this man for quite a while. And uh, uh, none of that, however, stopped me from recognizing that the electoral system had become so, um, I'll use the technical term, foobard. Yeah. Yeah. Fubar. Fubar. It's a, it's a look it up. It's a, it's a, yeah. yeah World War II military term. That's it right. It goes along with, with snafu. Yeah. Um, they're acronyms. The electoral system becomes so fubar that um, uh, it was impossible for any resemblance of the old Democrat and public parties um, to sustain themselves. It would have to become more and more um, uh, fists in the street. Um, France, as you know, um, is in, in total uh, meltdown at this point. The first daughter of the church. Yes. Um, you have to wonder what demons are involved in that sort of activity. Um, you also know that through the variety of, of French constitutions and, and early assertion of this, the laïcité, um, and the denial, uh, effectively, uh, uh, judicial denial of religion in France ha has been a long time 20th century story. You probably also know that when uh, Islamic uh, Jihad showed up on the doorstep, the Constitution didn't even recognize what that might be. Right. It so it had to be suspended. The Constitution had to be suspended in order to deal with a thing which is never, never mentioned in the Constitution. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I just lost my train of thought. I was going to ask something about uh, the, the meltdown in France. Uh, anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. It'll come back to me. Okay. Um, this is the quantitative subconscious sense in your uh, soul which is trying to reconnect with the memorative and imaginative dimensions of this. So your, so your cogitation will come back. I'm sure of it. Uh, the, the, these meltdowns, um, globalism, gone. There is no globalism anymore. Globalism has been replaced as one of the uh, mentors behind our work, Samuel Huntington, suggested 
we are in a clash of civilizations mode now. Now, Sam's work, uh, Sam's also a mentor to my partner, Phil Midland. Um, so I've made a study of Sam. Sam was a fascinating uh, figure and utterly failed uh, after the uh, collapse of the Berlin Wall to get people to pay attention to now we've multiplied our problems. This is no longer a bipolar world. Um, Francis uh, calls it a polyhedral world. This is uh, a fine uh, soccer ball or football uh, yeah. uh, reference, I guess. But this is coalesced into, into roughly three um, geopolitical spheres. By that, I mean they are literally everywhere, overlapping everywhere. You, you, there, there's no place to hide. You're going to find East in every Chinatown and every Confucius Institute. You're going to find West in shopping malls in Beijing. Yeah. And uh, Maseratis, uh, Ferraris, and Prada. That's not Chinese. That's the West. Yeah. But the biggest, um, so that's kind of just a retracing of the previous bipolar world, replacing Russia with China. Um, easy enough to do. Many have done that. Spangler and, and many others along the way have suggested that. But what we have done takes this a rather radical step beyond that. Is uh, Elon Musk east or west? Neither. Question. He's neither one. He's neither one. He's global. He's got factories everywhere. He meets with heads of state. What does he and so many other people like him represent? And we are suggesting that this is a third sphere, the digital sphere. My favorite example in this is actually Eric Schmidt because I happen to know him personally. So for those in your audience who may not know, Eric Schmidt was a technology executive. He probably is best known nowadays for his role as chairman at Google. He stepped down from that role. I met him when he was an acquisition for Sun Microsystems. Um, and uh, I was the leading analyst on the street following Sun Microsystems. And, and so I met him in the 80s, actually. He's now um, the AI czar for the West. How do I know this? Well, you can take a look at the newspaper stories. You can take a look at the uh, uh, exposés, which are beginning uh, to appear about Eric Schmidt. But I will um, simply indicate to you that a good friend of mine uh, has just uh, resigned from one of Eric Schmidt's enterprises for this reason. He, he did not want to be a part of this uh, endless uh, geopolitical machinations on behalf of the robots. Wow, that's interesting. You know, um, to, to bring this back a little bit to the church and theology. Yes. I mean, I... I to me, as I've often said, uh, and the title of my blog emphasizes this, the Second Vatican Council's project 
was essentially an attempt to rearticulate all of Catholic doctrine through the lens of a Christological anthropology. Uh, an attempt to, to go back to Henry de Lubac's book, for example, The Drama of Atheist Humanism, and what we see, uh, the, the role that Carol Wojtyla played as well in, in uh, guiding the first part of Gaudium et Spes, especially section 22 that talks about it's only within the mystery of Christ that the mystery of man uh, takes, on, takes on meaning, that the, the council's project was essentially uh, this theological anthropology. And its goal was to therefore answer the question better than modernity does, what is a human being? Right. And it and answered it Christologically. And therefore, it seems to me the ongoing project that I am aligned with communio theology and, and thinkers in that vein uh, are, are trying to articulate precisely this Trinitarian Christological anthropology to answer that question. What is a human being? And it seems to me that question uh, is now the pressing question in the light of AI, in the light of this digital revolution that's a, that's about to wash over us like a tsunami. We need to be asking, and this is precisely, I mean, the, the church right now seems utterly preoccupied with matters of sexuality and LGBTQ and all that. And not that those things are unimportant, but it just seems as if it's, it's missing the central point uh, that we need to be driving home here. What is a human being? And that will not emerge from synodality either. No, it won't. It won't. Uh, what will emerge from synodality is an ill-assorted melange of competing opinions uh, right. about, about various things from people who are not properly grounded, I think, in, in, a, in a deep and profound intellectual understanding of precisely right. the crisis that we face that you're describing. That's right. Um, I am very much looking forward to further conversations, maybe small group conversations with um, Communio uh, theologians and others. It has uh, struck me as just so clear in the way that you have put this uh, factional uh, sort of, of question. Uh, Putting uh, um, left-wing and, and right-wing theologians uh, in a cage match and uh, <laughs> see, seeing who draws first blood and, and, and who runs away uh, has gotten so boring. Yes. And needs, clearly needs, uh, an approach that doesn't identify with either uh, left or right, uh, but instead uh, is really ready to pick up all those dropped torches um, which have, have been burning down the scenery. Yes. Um, and so um, uh, I thank you again. Um, I'm not signing off necessarily. We'll go as long as you want, but yeah. I thank you again uh, for uh, the light that you have been shining well, onto onto all of this. This is, uh, I know some of the other people that you're involved with, they're very busy as you are, and they have many um, projects that they're working on. But uh, I think in the, in the wider uh, public uh, sphere, uh, your work uh, really uh, 
deserves to be rewarded. Well, well thank you for that, Mark. Uh, I, I appreciate that coming from uh, somebody that I uh, that I who I hold in high in high esteem. Uh, but the, the the fact of the matter is this: is is that my my view to go back early to talk about modernism and repression and all that sort of stuff is that. The church cannot be about talking about right, left. The church cannot be about simply baptizing all of these changes and saying, okay, we're going to change like a chameleon, reading the signs of the times. The world's now digital. Okay, we're just going to ride that wave. It can't, it can't be that kind of accommodation. So that's the left wing answer. The right wing answer is let's retrench. Let, let's fall back into our old trenches. Let's fall back into the realm of deductive epistemic certainty. Let's, let's fall back into old line thinking. That's not going to do it. What has to happen is the church has to propose a better answer. It has to out humanist the humanists. It has to an, out psychologize the psychologists, out anthropologize the anthropologists, and so on. It has to give a deeper, better, and more profound answer, because that's the only thing that's going to provoke and bite and have, and have a certain cogency uh, to the modern world. And that's going to require reimagining all kinds of things that we have failed to even begin right. to imagine up to this right. point. So that's kind of that's kind of my my project, which is why I'm so fascinated with what you're up to as well. Now, before we get out of here, though, I, I know um, we've been going for a while off camera. I asked you if you had seen this book here, which I realized after the last time I talked to you, oh, I've got this book on my shelf and I've never read it. Yeah. It's called right. Thomistic Psychology, a Philosophic Analysis of the Nature of Man. It's written by a Dominican, Robert Edward Brennan. He's deceased now. This book was written a very long time ago. I, I can't remember when you would know. Um, and since you brought up sort of Thomistic philosophical psychology numerous times, both last session and now this one, maybe you could talk a little bit about Okay, in, in the interest of proposing a better answer, what are the resources we have? Here is a resource. Here, there, is, there are resources in the Thomistic framework for discussing these inner senses, for discussing these sorts of things in a way that we perhaps can retrieve <laughs> very meaningfully. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Excuse me, you got me so excited. <laughs> Uh, that's great. That doesn't happen to me very often. <laughs> the phrase that we used when we started <clears throat> Trivium University was digital retrieves the medieval. And I think that's at the heart of what we have to sort out here. Okay. If you will, the downward spiral, which becomes a circle of the wagons eventually, as we both noted, happened in the Middle Ages. Yes. And so reimagining that challenge that the church faced now. Um, six, seven centuries ago, not a early 20th century problem, but an older problem using um, scholarship of people like uh, D.C. Schindler and others. That, I think, is the basis. And in the medieval sensibility 
the soul was front and center. And the faculties of the soul, well, there were certainly disagreements, and it is not a dogmatic matter, uh, but Aquinas, um, Aristotle, uh, and then uh, ultimately what uh, Leo XIII was trying to catalyze um, uh, with uh, uh, Eterni Patri and uh, and with Catholic uh, social teaching. Um, I have delivered a lecture series, eight sessions on YouTube, entitled Digital Catholic Social Teaching. So by appending digital to the front of this, and then trying to go through human dignity, subsidiarity, and solidarity as the three primary principles here. And spending time with the um, follow-on, Pius XI's uh, quadragesimo, 40 years later, and uh, JP2's um, Centissimos Anos. Uh, you probably know that uh, uh, Pope St. John Paul II, uh, I think I have the words in the right order there, um, he started a international organization uh, to back up <clears throat> in very broad terms, what he had written in, in Santissimos, 100 years after Leo the 13th had introduced Catholic social teaching. That organization exists today. It has um, a big blowout uh, annual meeting in Rome, audience with the Pope, whoever that may happen to be at this time. And it's run by Italian bankers. There's no Catholic social teaching. <laughs> this at all. This is this is the Catholic version of Davos or something like that. Yeah. So yeah. this this points to the necessity. No reason to be hostile. No reason to uh, picket um, the. Uh, organization's uh, annual event. Um, but we need to start building some of these of our own. Um, it, it will be necessary. And, and here is um, the incomplete thought that uh, I've uh, approached a couple of times in today's discussion. Propaganda doesn't work. Right. And that has been proven to everybody who has tried it with far more money and, and, and far more resources than we or even the church probably will ever have. Doesn't work. So what replaced propaganda? Replaced propaganda was the term that we now throw around called memes. Right. Memes, right. Were, meant, memes were meant to be not intellectual. They're meant to be <clears throat> not rationalized. They were meant to be impossible to explain. Now we're in interesting territory. Now we're dealing with the subconscious. We're not approaching this intellectually. Right. But even more importantly, the whole 
exercise known as memes, ultimately named um, in the 1970s um, by an atheist um, uh, to be the mental equivalent of genetics, which, by the way, has now collapsed. People are no longer thinking that if we just had the sequencing, the genetic sequencing of, of everybody on Earth, we would suddenly be able to plug it into a computer and figure out what, what we're going to have for lunch tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. Uh, but the because whole of, notion we're, we're, we're discovering that genetic reductionism just does not work. It doesn't work. And so we're, we're now going to have to go back and take a look at memetics and, um, and how that has developed um, into a manipulative environment that is now also being rejected. So propaganda failed. The follow-on, which is based on the principle that everyone gets to decide what kind of car they're going to drive, you you don't really get to, well, eventually you get to decide you don't have to drive a car at all, or maybe it'd be electric. But all, all of this is always in, was within a, a theme that is not challenging any of the fundamentals associated with this. Yeah. And so the recognition by the propagandists in World War II, um, with a big focus on what, was, what had happened at, in Germany, was that you have to let people imagine that they're actually making their own choices as opposed to being told. Now, Gregory Bateson, in a uh, comment to his then-wife, Margaret Mead's paper, at the conference I was describing earlier, which is a PhD dissertation by my partner at Trivue, he said, we need to give the population an illusion of free will. Right. We have to have them operating in what is actually a maze that we have designed for them, but they think they get to choose whether they can turn left or right. That 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 has also failed because, in fact, we figured out how to stand on each other's shoulders and look over the top of the maze. We, we, we are escaping that maze and the illusion of free will and the philosophical notion you may have heard of, uh, known as, as compatibility or yes. compatibilism, which is to say, obviously, there's no such thing as free will, but we're going to pretend there is anyway. Right, exactly. We're going to, over the next few generations, I'm absolutely confident that we are re restoring free will. We're restoring an uh, understanding of the psyche, the human soul. Uh, and um, it'll be far more interesting than um, Howard Beale just simply saying, uh, I'm fed up, I can't take it anymore. So your project to to lay out a more uh, compelling for future audiences, more compelling for those kids who are coming up now saying, I'm not going to take it anymore. But now um, I don't think sitting around um, and uh, um, wasting my life uh, is the correct answer. It's far too urgent for that. Um, we are in a, um, a quite remarkable situation, and uh, I totally endorse your uh, suggestions here and um, pledge to be as helpful as I can. Well, that's fantastic. And uh, 
I mean, like I said, I could talk to you for hours about this. Uh, and maybe we need maybe we need a parts three, four and five. Maybe we need to have an ongoing uh, series of of conversations. If you have the uh, if you have the time for that and the desire to do that, because I have I have the uh, deep interest in doing that. And I it will not surprise you when I say, because I'm sure you're involved with some of, some of this, some of the people we've mentioned today and many who we haven't mentioned are now in the process of trying to put together their own networks, more formal conferences and, and various sorts yeah. of events. Um, so I think we're on the, on the cusp of an organizing activity. Yes. Which, which I hope these, my conversations with you and your audience um, gives a, a positive contribution. Well, that's great. And maybe we can even, uh, in our next conversation, widen the net uh, just a bit and maybe bring in a few other people, uh, both that you might suggest and I might suggest and and uh, and, and have a, a more free flowing conversation with a number of people. But anyway, we have gone on now for about an hour and 15 minutes. I don't want to tax the the patience of, of the viewers and listeners too much longer. Mark, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you. What, what people don't know is uh, we were supposed to do this yesterday and I had some issues come up. And then we were supposed to do it today and we didn't connect right away. So it's almost as if the, something out there doesn't want us to meet or something or other, but uh, we finally did. So thank you so much, Mark. Thank you very much. And thank you everybody for listening. Looking forward to the next steps. Thank you so much. Thank you.